Hello, welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ramblick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the important areas in financial services over the past several decades has been self-managed super funds. Um, in short, a self-managed fund is a fund that has under five people uh, that are members of it. They then do what... Uh, they then play within their own fund in terms of investments and strategies and whatever have you. It's an area of compliance that has caused a lot of heartaches uh, for, for various people. Uh, and it's been regulated by the audit board and the ATO uh, in the audit space and by ASIC, the corporate regulator, uh, in terms of investment and financial advice. Today I've got uh, the chief um, busybody, if you like, the the head of BGL Australia, um, Ron Lesh, whose products specialise in uh, superannuation, SMSFs, in order to talk to Ron about the sorts of things that uh, matter um, in the SMSF space. Ron, thanks for joining me. Oh, look, thank you for the invitation, Tom. It's been Absolutely. a long time. It's been a very long time. Now, now, there will be listeners who don't know where where you've uh, where you've come from uh, in terms of your professional career. What would your career look like if you had to sum it up on the back of an envelope? Oh, that, that's that's reasonably it's reasonably easy. I um, started life as a as an accountant working for a PKF, a chartered accounting firm. Um, I qualified as a chartered accountant, worked for them overseas, and then left them in mid in the mid eighties. Uh, went into a small accounting firm where I became a partner so, and uh, at 28 and then decided that the people I was in partnership with were not really the people I wanted to be in partnership with for the rest of my life. So I, I left that, um, did a post-grad in IT, uh, started to uh, uh, work at another accounting firm where I was a, a senior manager and I had my own client portfolio. Um, and, and at the same time, worked on developing some software for, uh, at the time, uh, companies' office compliance. Um, we had all the state companies' offices. So we wrote some software for that. In 1991, ASIC came in, so we moved that national. Um, I moved out of uh, accounting into BGL, or what it was at the time, a consulting organization. We wrote the software package. In 97, we wrote the... I wrote the super package, an investment package, and a general ledger, and uh, we've sort of gone forward from there. Today, we sit with uh, well over 750,000 entities in the cloud and both our corporate compliance and super products, and uh, numbers growing every day, and uh, we continue to survive through this uh, COVID disaster. It's interesting. The fact that you embraced IT reasonably early on and have made a success of it. It's fascinating, Ron. Um, how precisely did that begin for you? Well, I, 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 decided, I was working um, in accounting and I was working with a lot of clients that were putting in uh, computer systems and I wanted to know more about it. So I went back and did a post-grad. Um, it, was, it was really as, as simple as that. And then um, uh, I just found it much more interesting going forward. We learned how to program. I wrote the first product that we ended up selling as a as an assignment during a uh, uh, as part of my course. So it sort of started there. But we've we've gone through many many generations of IT uh, 
uh, from BGL. We started off in DOS, those that remember DOS. Uh, we then moved to, to Windows, to networks, to, um, to cloud hosted, uh, uh, and then uh, probably the last seven or eight years into pure cloud where everything's hosted in the data center. What are the those those different technological transformations have been fascinating to watch? Um, how comfortable have people been with the different elements of security, Ron? Because every you, know, you you go from the old old school um, uh, sort of DOS systems, which you've mentioned and go all the way through to the cloud, and each one demands something else of the user of a product in terms of understanding the different levels of security, the different elements of um, information to safety, if you like. How does it all work out with clients as they learn new stuff? Uh, look, we um, we spend a lot of money on security, I suppose. What I've found and what I've, I think I've done all the way through my career is employ people who are smarter than me. So um, my, my head of IT and the guy who runs the platforms here has probably been with us, I think, 14 years. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah. Very smart guy. Uh, he handles, you know, we handle the security. We had to go through ISO, so we employed somebody to, uh, to handle that. So we're ISO 27001 certified. Um, so you sort, sort of handle it. I, I think the environment that we're working in today, having stuff in the cloud, is probably a lot safer than a lot of people who are running desktop software, especially if that desktop, desktop software has some sort of cloud connection. Um, and, and even if it doesn't, just running their own computers uh, without the proper uh, the proper tools, the proper software installed is very dangerous and probably far more dangerous than um, than running a product in the cloud the way we do. Uh, running in Amazon, we have a lot of inbuilt security in Amazon itself, but we also do a lot of uh, penetration testing and and all that sort of stuff, and have external consultants to do that for us to certify us. Uh, so, look, it's just it's part of the part of the role that we do. Um, I, it doesn't phase me or worry me particularly. It's just something we do, something we insure against. Uh, and there's not much more you can do than that. Yeah, it, it's interesting to, for people to understand what a software company like yours does mm. uh, in terms of security and developing the the right element of, um, shall we say, uh, uh, the, the right element of a safety online, if you like. Um, yeah. Um, because not everyone is trained in that space. Uh, they may use products, but they're not all trained in that space. Mm. If we take a pivot, Ron, uh, part of your uh, passion, if you like, and I've read some of your blogs on this stuff, um, is the regulation of self-managed super funds, which of course is a, it's an area in which you've got a product. What are some of the concerns you've got at the moment in the marketplace? Um, oh, look, I think there's a couple of a couple of areas that I have concerns around. Um, we've written quite a bit about the uh, the ASIC uh, uh, flyer that came out last year that we've said is is false and misleading. 
um, because that ASIC have basically manipulated the data to come up with the result that they wanted, which is not a real result and not a real reflection of the cost of running a self-managed super fund. So I certainly um, spend a lot of time having a, having a go at them over that. Um, I've also uh, uh, done, I suppose, spent a bit of time last, last year, year before, um, trying to get the tax office to come up with a reasonable reporting uh, process for self-managed super funds for the uh, new balance cap, um, because the, what they wanted to do originally was just ridiculous. Um, we've now got a, a process that sort of works. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. Um, and they've still got a lot of work to do on their end, really. More than, more than us. So uh, I was involved in getting that to a point where um, uh, we got quarterly reporting instead of monthly reporting. We got it at the right periods. We eliminated small balances that were never going to hit the cap anyway. So we got things to a point where it was pretty, where it was more reasonable for our clients. So I'm, I'm happy to go in and bat for stuff like that. Uh, we also did a lot of stuff around the um, last election with the uh, all the changes that uh, that the Labor Party wanted to bring in, uh, scrapping franking credit refunds and a whole lot of stuff like that. So we did a lot of work around that as well. A lot of mail outs, a lot of things with clients, a lot of things explaining to clients how this affects them um, and, and why it's not it's not a good idea. Um, and uh, look, I think, I don't know if we had any effect at all in what we did, but certainly the end, the election ended up going the, a different way from the way everyone thought that it would. Yeah, that, that was an interesting, um, uh, certainly an interesting period of, of time um, with the 2019 election. Mm. Um, oh, look, well, you know, I think probably the thing, that I would say and that people would say about me is I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in business to help my clients. I'm not in business necessarily to make friends with all the regulators and everybody else. So um, I'll tell them how it is. If they don't like it, they can rebut what I say, but I'm not, I'll argue on facts and I'll argue uh, on ideas, um, but I'm, I'm not going to just accept things for the sake of them being accepted. Yeah, it's... It, it, that is an important element of contestability of a, of a, of a, of a regulatory environment where uh, regulators won't always get it right. They just happen to be regulators. Correct. Right? That doesn't mean that they're... Um, um, they're not always going to be correct, uh, as, as people um, have occasionally assumed. Um, because most of the judgments, for example, with a regulator like ASIC would make on accounting issues um, haven't yet haven't hit a court if there's a dispute between ASIC and a company. Yeah. Uh, it, it'll usually be the company that folds, um, so things don't necessarily get tested. People, um, people don't like to take on the regulators, and it, it appears to me that many of the organisations within the accounting industry, financial services industry, uh, would, are not prepared to get out there and say what their members think. Uh, they're too busy to appease the regulators because they want to stay friends with them. Well, look, that's not my business. I'm not in business to be friends with regulators. Um, so, you know, if, if, if the regulators are doing things that I think are dumb, I'm going to tell them. Um, they can like it or they cannot like it, but I'm certainly going to tell them. And, and I'm pretty sure they read it because uh, we certainly hear comments back from, uh, 
from other sources that they're not happy with us about things that we've said. But look, that's that's life. Um, at least someone's prepared to say it. Uh, whereas whereas uh, can, can I, a lot of people you, aren't. Well, you, you've said something interesting there. Um, and I might want to just tease it out some more. Sure. Um, because over, over my career, I've been employed by two professional organisations. Um, and one of the things that uh, I've noticed is that from time to time, uh, members are unhappy with a position advocated by uh, the body. Um, and, or, and often, or the fact often because the body has never asked the members what they want. The, the professional staff at the body, many of whom have got no experience in the real world, keep uh, making making decisions and advocating for things without talking to the members about it. So do you think members are paying money to professional bodies um, who then don't actually uh, enfranchise them by asking them what they think or what their real experience is? I think that happens in a lot of, or I think, I know that happens in a lot of cases. Um, the, the professional bodies just don't ask their members. Now, they'll say, oh, this is what the members think, but they won't really have ever asked them. Um, and we've, we've seen that so much over the past couple of years. You know, um, the whole thing, if you remember around the election in, in 2019, there was a whole thing around accounting fees. And... The, the accounting bodies were so slow to come out with a response to that. Uh, you know, when Shorten said he's going to limit them to, what, $500 or something. Uh, if, I, if I was a professional body, I would have been out there the next day supporting my members, to, suggesting how ridiculous this was. But no, it, it dragged and dragged. And eventually, the week before the election, we got some pronouncements from the accounting organisations that they didn't think it was a really good idea. Um, and we'd already been out there saying this for, you know, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks beforehand, um, getting it into people's heads that it, was, it wasn't a good idea and it was going to affect, dramatically affect small business in this country um, because they need their professional advisors and they need to get a tax deduction for what they're paying for them um, because most good advisors don't come cheap. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a, there's a lot of things like that. There's a lot of times and I've been incredibly disappointed. I, I really get the impression at times that the professional associations, the, the people that are, that are working there are only really uh, interested in their own career progression rather than that of the members of the organisation they're supposed to be uh, working for. It's interesting um, uh, when, you, uh, when you put it that way because... Uh, there will be. There are times when there is a, a limited pool of consultation. It might be with a with the centre of excellence or something, but um, it really does depend. Sometimes it depends on the topic. But the fact is, the members who pay the fees perceive that nobody's listening to them Correct. in certain situations, and that um, and that over time um, creates a, a problem. The other issue. The other issue for the membership is this. The barrier to entry is pretty high for people. They've got to have qualifications. Um, in some cases, they will have had to have practical experience. And then once they walk into a professional body, they need to actually do another qualification to get the, the top shelf designation. Correct. So they will be reluctant to um, ditch 
the designation. Correct. On, there, there, on, are, there are a lot of people with chartered accounting qualifications um, who may not necessarily use them that much, who would dump them tomorrow morning if they could keep the, the, the letters CA after their name or FCA after their name, um, because the value that they get from the organisation is, is negligible. Um, although I will say the fees have come down, but that's nice. The fees have come down and now the organisation makes a loss, but it used to make a profit. Um, and they've blown, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in members' funds on, on rubbish. Um, but, you know, the, uh, I don't think the, the professional organisations actually perceive the level of discontent that is out there. And, and it is huge. And I speak to so many, especially CAs, they're, they're just unimpressed. And the CPAs obviously have gone through a very interesting period uh, with their own show pony and all the, all the rubbish that happened around that. Um, and, and how the CPA board um, allowed that to happen is, is really quite beyond me. Um, it, you said before that you've occasionally uh, ruffled feathers with regulators. Um, yes. One of the more, uh, I think it, if we explore this issue in a bit more detail, because I think it's important um, one of the more provocative things you've said is that, that the amount people need to spend on an annual basis to manage an SMSF has been grossly overstated. Yes. Um, there are several reasons why that's interesting. Firstly, if something is overstated and it's said by a regulator, um, people may be afraid of entering into the SMSF space. Correct. Um, what do you really... What, what, what is the real number um, that you notice from the marketplace in terms of managing um, managing funds? Um, well, we, we did a media release on this uh, a few weeks ago just to try and, and try and really get some, some something reasonable about um, around the amounts. And we, we based it all on the figures that we got from the, uh, from the tax office um, for 2018 data, because 2019 is too soon. And, and while ASIC had on their flyer that uh, it cost $13,900, the average cost of running a fund, it was just rubbish. Because that, that average cost, they included interest, they included insurance, they included um, the, some expenses that should be in there, the cost of running the fund, they include investment expenses, they include forestry managed invest, investments and something called other deductions. I've got no idea what's in that in any case. So when you actually pull it out and have a look what the real cost of running a fund is, um, if we look at the median over all of funds, it's about $3,300 um, from an admin perspective. So that includes the auditor fee, the admin the accounting and ta tax work and the um, and the levy, uh, it comes out about three thousand three hundred for for a small fund. Um, it comes out about sixteen hundred dollars. Um, so you know that, those are those are funds that are with assets of less than fifty thousand dollars. So you know that's that's one point six percent. It's it's not as small as you'd like it, but uh, but it's it's certainly nowhere near the thirteen thousand nine hundred that they're talking about. Um, we also found that you know funds that with 
between one and two million, their average, the average fees they were paying for admin and, and probably included some investment advice is about $4,000 a year. So that's 0.4 of a percent, uh, which I think makes it cheaper than anything else to run. Oh, it depends. If you've got 2 million, it's 0.2 of a percent. Uh, so yeah, th it was just silly, I thought. If I'd put out the same information that ASIC did, um, I'm sure someone would have ha taken me taken me to court and told me it was false and misleading and, and been able to take action against me. Um, and ASIC would have been jumping on top of me, telling me, take it down, take it down, take it down, because uh, it would have been false and misleading. But because they're the regulator, um, you know, the only people to tell them is, is somebody who's got the guts to get up and say, well, look, you, we think you're wrong. Yeah, it's it's difficult when you're up again. It's difficult when you sort of sit there in your position and you look at look at that comment and then you see what goes on in the marketplace because the market activity can be skewed, can't it? Oh, very much so. Look, this whole thing of saying you need five hundred thousand dollars for self-made super funds rubbish. And in, in fact, it's quite interesting because. Uh, Self, it depends on so many factors as to what the minimum is for starting a fund. If you're starting a fund um, in year one and you've got maybe set $50,000 in super and you roll that into your fund, everyone will say, oh, you've got too little in your fund. How can you make any money out of it? Well, year two, they, uh, Mr. and Mrs. each put in um, 25 grand, suddenly got 100 grand in there. They buy a property for uh, $250,000 suddenly the, and borrow the rest. Suddenly the fund has a lot of assets. Suddenly the fund is no longer a, uh, a $50,000 fund. Um, and, and they might be in their mid-40s and that might be a really good strategy for them. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it's so there's no right figure or wrong figure. It's all dependent on the person's position, their age, their super balances. There are so many factors. And uh, coming out with blanket statements uh, is just, I think, wrong. Um, the ATO has given us a lot more data this year that we can see different sizes of funds. But what we still don't know is how many really, I suppose, is to be able to compare what we've now got with the next year and the year after to see what the ages and average ages of people in funds are and where where funds move from a category where they're a $50,000 fund to a $250,000 fund. Um, and I don't think the ATOs really tracks that in any case, and we can't track it. So uh, there's no, what I'm saying, I suppose, is there's just no rules. There's no fixed rule that says it should be this or it should yeah. be that. Are there, uh, are there any other sort of issues that... Um, are bubbling beneath the surface because the one you've touched touched on has a significant bearing on people understanding whether they're able to or should consider an SMSF. Yeah. Um, Look, the, the other major issue, and there is some movement and things going on about it, is is whether you ne you need to have a financial services license, an AFSL, to provide. Um, advice to a self-managed super fund. Now, I'm not talking about financial advice for specific products because I don't think people want to do that. But if we go back prior to the current legislations when we had the accountant's exemption, which, which if people don't know, is gone thanks to Bill Shorten. Um, and Bill Shorten and the accounting organisations not getting really uh, opposing what was going on. Um, we need to get back to a position where accountants can talk about the stuff around self-managed super. They can talk about establishment, talk about contributions, pensions, and winding up a fund. 
Uh, and that is well, not... are you are you okay let, let, let's are you arguing in favor of um what used to be known back in the day uh, one of the first stories i ever wrote dealing with the accounting profession was a thing called incidental advice well it's it's incidental advice but it comes it comes back to what uh to really what we had under the accountant's exemption um, which was which gave accountants the ability to talk about these things. I'm not suggesting accountants should be giving investment advice unless they're licensed to do so. They can certainly give strategic advice, um, and they're probably better at doing that than anybody else. Um, plus, the other thing is they're the most trusted advisor. So why would you cut the most trusted advisor out of a role where they can really be helpful to their clients? And that's, that's what the, the changes to the corporation's law did uh, back four or five years ago now. Um, and, and again, the accounting organisations were not strong enough to stop that happening, and they should have been. Um, and, and now we've got a, you know, now we're going through all this current stuff. The regulators now said, oh, no, accountants can now give advice. Well, why was it okay for them to give advice now, but wasn't okay for them to give advice before COVID-19? Uh -huh. yeah, how yeah. did that make any sense? Um, <laughs> they're either competent to give the advice or they're not competent to give the advice. They haven't suddenly become competent to give the advice. So it really just shows that the whole system is flawed. And, and look, and that goes in some respects into financial services. And something we've also talked about a bit is this: uh, the fact that you know to do a statement of advice has to be uh, forty or fifty pages and cost four or five thousand dollars or three or four thousand dollars. When really, for a few a few hundred dollars, you should be able to give somebody some good strategic and even product advice in two pieces of paper rather than 50 pieces of paper. Uh, and why, why we've gone to this cover our ass at every, at every opportunity uh, statement of advice really just amazes me because it's done the exact opposite of what the government wanted. It wanted more people to get advice. Now people, less people are getting advice because it's too expensive. Now, the, the vibe you're probably, and I take it that, that the vibe that you're getting from people who are your customers, people who use your products, you said it's, it's just too difficult for them to you know, have the conversation with the client right now. Oh, look, I think a lot of them have the conversation and they say to, then they write a, 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 a file note that says, client came to me and asked for a self-money super fund. I don't think that what accountants are doing has probably changed very much. It's just the way that it's delivered has changed so that they keep themselves uh, within the law, hopefully. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting. Now, Ron, uh, it, it, the, you've got a lot to say, and I know the BGL blog has certainly got a lot of material on it, which some people might want to go and read when they hear what you've just I had a chat to me about where do they find uh, where do they find that material and how do they get in touch with you? Oh, uh, look, it's simply uh, www.bgocorp.com.au. Um, that's our website. All of our stuff for the blog is on there, or, or yep. through LinkedIn. Uh, there's a there's a um, a lot, I've got a lot of material on LinkedIn as well. Most of the stuff that's on the blog also ends up on LinkedIn. Uh-huh. So it's uh, www. 
uh, bglcorp.com.au and you'd be able to find Ron Leish uh, somewhere on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, search me up, yeah. <laughs> Yep. Uh, and that is uh, that's actually a good place to start if you want to know more about Ron and the views he's got on a range of issues. We've only touched the surface over the past uh, 25 or so minutes. Ron, thanks for, thanks for making time to join me today. Pleasure, Tom. And I look forward to chatting to you again. And for the listeners of the podcast, uh, stay safe, look after each other, and uh, we'll be, I'll be back with another podcast in, a, in the next little while.